Hey, it's, uh, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, listen, this might be your first time uh, here at the church, or uh, maybe uh, you've been visiting for a little bit. I don't know what brought you here. Maybe you're a dad, and the family said, you can do whatever you want, but you've got to come to church first. And maybe you're not used to that, or maybe you just figured that, uh, you know, she's cute. I'm going to follow her in here, and she came to church. So we want you to be a creeper for Jesus here. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is that brought you here, but wherever you are, however long you've been in church or haven't, we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you've never filled out one of these Connect cards right here, we'd love for you to fill out this card, and then just on your way out, you can drop in one of the buckets on the way out, and uh, we'll contact you, and if you have questions about God or Jesus or how to take your next step there or with the church or find out more about the church, uh, we would love to tell you about that, because if, if you're not familiar with this church, this is a phenomenal church with a rich history, and the best days are yet to come, so I'm excited, and you've got an amazing team here, amazing team, and uh, Pastor David and, and the people there, so I'm just thankful for that. Um, and I do know a lot about you, but you don't know a lot about me, so I want to tell you about me, okay? I love movies, and I'm not talking about Redbox. I mean, I and my wife, both, we like to go to the movie theater and sit in darkness next to people where we have no idea what their criminal background record is. That's what we love to do. That's what we love, you know, to call a good time. And when we were first married, we went to movie after movie after movie, and then all of a sudden, we stopped going because we fell into a depression. You see, for about two years or so, we've been trying to get pregnant. No matter what happened, we couldn't get pregnant. And we tried and we tried and we tried. And I handled my depression by throwing myself into my work, and my wife was much more destructive with hers and started watching Hugh Grant movies and Twilight and chick flicks over and over again. And, you know, ain't nobody got time for that. So I told her, we're going to get you pregnant one way or another. And we went to a, a fertility clinic, and we got pregnant on our first try with Joel and our second try with Rachel. Rachel's now seven, and Joel's nine. I love both of them, but I got to tell you about Joel's birth because he was the firstborn, and it was so unique. The day that we found out we were pregnant, I did things that I had never done before. I went and trolled Babies or Us for like, you know, three or four hours. I was the creepy single guy walking around all the children's sections, you know, and they would ask me over and over again, you know, what, what do you need? But I was just so excited to be a, a dad, and I couldn't wait to be able to go to uh, people's houses when we were invited for dinner, and we were the couple you would not want to have over. We dominated conversations, talked about ourselves, talked about our pregnancies. We lost friends. We didn't care. We got new friends, right? <laughs> we were just excited to be pregnant, and I couldn't wait to get to the hospital. I knew what to expect. I had seen the movies. I knew that when the baby came out, there'd be this underscoring John Williams music, this light from heaven, the baby would grab my finger, and the first word would be father, and that is not what happened. <laughs> we got to the hospital, and everything was great until the pain hit my wife, and she became somebody I had not exchanged vows with at that point. <laughs> and I put my hand on her shoulder, and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Emily Rose, Linda Blair, whatever your name is, I'm going to be <laughs> over here. And the doctor gave her drugs, and she went back to loving God and others at that point. And again, everything was going great until it was time for my son to come into the world. And it was really interesting, because they came in, and they spread out this plastic mat all over the floor. And the doctor and the nurses are putting on what looks like body armor and a welding mask. And I went up to the doctor. I said, is something getting ready to explode? I'm the only one that's not covered. And, you know... Don't worry about it, Dad. It's going to be okay. And so they got in a football position to catch my son. And literally, my expression dropped when he came in the world from this to... I was like, whoa! I mean, I had never seen anything like that. I mean, he came out. He was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. 
He had the weirdest looking head. He was slimy, made the most annoying noise in the world. I mean, people, listen, I saw things that day I didn't even know existed. And he, they wrap him up in this blanket, and my wife is in pain, and there's controlled chaos in the room, and they give my son to me, and I'm holding him for the first time, and I really have, don't have much of a filter some of the times in what I said. They said, Mr. Kaltenbach, what do you think about your son? I said, he looks like a turtle. And when my daughter was born, she looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. And here's what I can promise. that if you were there, you would have said, Caleb, that was really, really messy. And, and you were right. But there was something that welled up inside of me. And if you're a parent, especially a dad, on a Father's Day like this, you can understand this. When you hold your child for the first time, it doesn't matter how messy they are, the, the weirdness, the odd odor, anything like that. You're holding them for the first time, and this love wells up out of nowhere. And you just look through the mess, and you love your child in that moment. And I want to let you know something real quick, and some of you, this may be the first time that you ever hear this, is that God feels the exact same way about each and every single one of you. Even if you have never been to church before, even if you have had a bad church experience, this is your first time back, listen, God feels that way about you. He looks through the mess and he says, that's my child. You see, what the, what the world does, society and culture, they love to label us and categorize us and define us by our messiness. They like to say, you've got marriage problems, you've got financial problems, you can't hold a job, you're having issues with your kids, you're cutting, you've had abortions, you've been divorced how many times, you're this, you're this. But here's what God does. God peels off the labels, takes us out of the categories, looks past the mess, and he says, that's my child. And I love my child. And, and so that, that's how God feels about us. But, you know, it's easy for him, right? He's God. I mean, God is love, right? He can do that. But for us, what do we do when we have the messy people in our lives? Because surely not us, right? We're not messy, even though the first two letters are messy or M-E, right? We're not messy at all. <laughs> well, what do you do with the people who are difficult, the people who don't like you, the people you don't like, the people that are annoying, the people that vote differently than you, especially this year, right? What do you do with those people who vote differently than you, you know, this year? Or for some of you, those who vote at all this year. I mean, what, what do you do with people who get on your nerves, who are annoying, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Some of you drove to church with these people today. <laughs> and some of you are elbowing that person and saying, I hope you're listening to what he's saying right now. You need to be listening to the gospel, Right? I mean, what, what do we do? Because that's difficult. How do we love messy people? And so what I want to do today is I want to help us, including myself, learn how to love messy people. So if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. If you don't have those, we're going to have the words on the screen in just a second. As you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about John. John is the fourth book of the New Testament, pretty easy to find, uh, and it is the fourth gospel. And basically, gospel means good news, and it is a collection of stories and sayings, sometimes chronological sometimes not chronological, of Jesus. And what I love about John is that it's written by one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, or in other words, one of his students that followed him around. And so many of the things that he saw Jesus do or, or heard him say, he wrote down in his gospel, John. And so when you read John, everything that John saw, he wrote down, and everything he heard Jesus say, he wrote down. So that's what you're reading right there. And I, I told my congregation this all the time. I'm going to tell you this. That if Jesus came for the first time today, I'm convinced he would have his own TV reality show. And the reason why is because 
if you're not familiar with the Gospels, when you read the Gospels, when you read the stories of Jesus, incredible things happen to Jesus that don't happen anywhere else. It would be a best-selling reality TV show. It would be Keeping Up With Jesus. That would be the name of it. I have no clue. Because incredible things happen to Jesus, but Jesus is a master at always taking these incredible things that happen to him, and he can use them to teach people about God, and, and specifically about what God has to say about life. So in John chapter 8, verse 2, join me there. It says, at dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? The beginning of verse 6 just really drives me nuts here. It says that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, let me just set the scene for you. You have Jesus here with his disciples teaching, and then you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are the popular pastors of the day. These are the seminary and Bible college professors with their PhDs, and they have the Bible memorized and commentaries on the Bible memorized, and they have no life. They're 50 years old, still living with their parents in the basement, playing with their pet tarantula. That's what these people do, okay? And they don't like Jesus, Okay, because Jesus is teaching absolutely opposite everything that they do. And then you have the people listening to Jesus, the common people, which in the Gospels are also called sinners. These are people who are sometimes making choices that God would not approve of, but also this word can be used to represent somebody who, you know, specifically uh, does not agree with the Pharisees or does not fit in with them. And so Jesus is teaching them. They catch this woman who's in the act of adultery. We don't know how the Pharisees caught her. Obviously, they're creepers, and they take her, and they drag her through town, humiliating her, put her before Jesus, and they say, Moses gave us permission to stone this woman. Now, what do you say? Now, it's incredible, because they think they have him in a checkmate. I mean, if Jesus says, yes, stone her, he loses, you know, the people over here that believe in him. But if he says, no, don't stone her, then they say, oh, you're breaking the law. And they say, Moses gave us permission, which, if you want in your spare time to turn to Deuteronomy 22 later on this afternoon, you will see that God says that if you find a man and a woman in the act of adultery, you may take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man or woman. And I read this, and I'm like, where's the dude? And I read it again last night to make sure that that I didn't miss him in here, but he's not in here. And I'm thinking, what happened? Did he get a get-out-of-jail-free card or something like that? And I guess what really makes me mad is that they don't care about her. They just care about being right. They are using this woman as much as the man who was having an affair with her was using her. No, I don't care who you are. You may not believe in God yet or even this book right here, but you got to admit that's messed up, right? Now, my reaction would be emotionally reactive. Anybody else emotionally reactive? Yeah, you're not going to own that. Nobody else is going to own that except for me. And emotionally reactive people, you say words and everybody's a casualty. But Jesus does something that's a little awkward. And you say, Caleb, don't call what Jesus does awkward. I I didn't say it was bad. I said it was weird and strange. Here's his response, okay? The end of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Awkward. You say, no, it's not. Oh, really? When was the last time you were in a disagreement? You said, hold on. (laughs) I tried it last week with Amy, my wife. Do not recommend it, guys. No points will be scored. 
And so many people try to figure out what Jesus was writing. Some people think maybe he was writing uh, different verses of Scripture or maybe the sins of the people. But I found this interesting passage all the way back in the Old Testament uh, written by this prophet named Jeremiah. And in his book, Jeremiah, uh, beginning with verse, uh, in, in chapter 17, beginning with verse 13, I think this gives us a clue as to maybe what Jesus was writing. Listen to this right here and see if you don't make the connection. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. And all who forsake you will be put to shame. And those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. You see, I think that the Pharisees probably thought that this woman, you know, she made a choice here that was not acceptable to God, that nobody would approve of, that God didn't approve of. But they thought, okay, she's outside of the bounds of God's grace. And Jesus says, well, you, having all the truth but no love, you're actually outside the bounds of God's grace by how you're treating her. I think there's something we need to pay attention to, especially if we follow Jesus. But they don't pay attention to it. And in verse 7, it says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now, you don't even have to go to church on a regular basis to know this saying, right? They're casting stones. Ye without sin cast the first stone. But what we don't see is the theological brilliance of what Jesus is saying here. You see, Jesus believed, and the Pharisees believed, just like we believe at this church, and I do too, that God is sinless, that he is the only sinless being, that he is the only one that has all the power, all-knowing, all-present. He is what we call sovereign, he is in total control, and he is sinless. Everybody else has sin attached to them in some way, shape, or form. And, And so, believing that, if they picked up a rock and threw it at this woman, they would be lying, As a matter of fact, God thought that lying was such a big deal that out of the 613-some commands in the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to put that one in the top 10, right? Familiar with that one, King James style, thou shalt not bear false witness. So they don't want to do that. But Jesus also knew that if they picked up a rock and threw it, they would be claiming to be sinless. In other words, they would be claiming to be God or be on the same level with God, and the very rock that they threw would be used to throw it right back at them. Now, even if you don't believe in Jesus... You gotta admit, he's got mad skills. Mad skills to be able to reason. I wish I had that. I think it's something four hours later and text somebody and loses its whatever. Look at verse nine. I love, the, I love verse nine. This is the end of this. You gotta love this. It says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? The beginning of verse 11 says, no one, sir. She said, now, if you feel comfortable highlighting, circling, underlining, you know, in, in, your, in your Bible, uh, your mobile device, if you're able to do that, you need to underline the rest of verse 11 because this is the whole reason why we went through this passage. I think that this is Jesus' formula as to how we can love people who are difficult, annoying, messy in our own lives, okay? Here's what he says. It's actually one sentence in the original language right here. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, in this one instance, Jesus gives us a formula of how to love people who are messy, right? He says, first, then neither do I condemn you, which is grace. Go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, don't do what you've been doing. That's truth. And so you see this combination of both grace and truth there. As a matter of fact, if we're going to turn back earlier in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17 say that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. 
Now, again, he's God, right? He's got a corner market on it. I mean, he can handle that. But for us, there is a tension there, and it's difficult, and it's uncomfortable, and we don't like the tension, and so what we do is we'll take sides. We'll either say, I'm all about the grace, or I'm all about the truth. But here's what I want to suggest real quick, that if Jesus came full of both grace and truth, and that's what he did, then maybe the most Christ-like thing we can do is to also stand for both grace and truth and refuse to take sides. And dare I say, it is spiritually immature and is also unchristlike to take sides when Jesus refused to take sides. As a matter of fact, let me go a step further. And I'm not trying to insult anybody in here because I think we all fall on one side or the other. I think it's weak to take sides. It's weak, it's flimsy. If I say I'm all about the grace over here, it's like holding a rubber band by one side. There's no power to it. It's weak, it's flimsy. And you know people like this, right? Everybody in here, you're either on the grace side or the truth side. And the people on the grace side, we love them, but they're annoying. Every day is Sesame Street. Every day is, it's a small world. God is love, and God loves you, and God loves everybody. God loves, and God loves, and God loves. And I mean, I think their version of God is Buddy the Elf. I mean, I really think that that's what they think of God. And, you know, those, you know, those of us on the truth side, we're kind of like, I, I really hope you have a bad day. So you'll be brought down like the rest of us, okay, and live in reality because there are these people over here, and we love these people. But then let's just be honest. Those of you on the truth side, we love you, but you're just as annoying, I mean, you know the Bible, and you know the importance of people knowing doctrine and theology, right? And you want people to know that that's important, so much so that you'll sacrifice the grace and the love part. And you're, you, know, you want everybody to know how spiritually mature, and you can recognize these people who are on the true side over here because they add extra syllables to Jesus' name. It's not Jesus, it's Jesus, and they talk about the Lord like this when they talk about him, right? But again... There's no power, it's weak, it's flimsy, it's like holding a rubber band on one side, but check this out. Look at where the power is. If I say, hey, I'm on the side of both grace and truth, where's the power? The power is in the tension of the two. And we run from where the power is because tension is uncomfortable and it's supposed to be uncomfortable. And God never called us to be comfortable in what we believe or how we treat people, right? And, I, and, I, and you feel this tension right here, you know? God's word says this, but I want to do this over here. God's word says this, but my friend is doing this, but God's word says this, and my friend, and we feel this tension, and I know what it is. There's a name for this. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension between grace and truth, and when you refuse to live in the tension of grace and truth, you take sides, and you don't stand for love, right? Love God, love people, and you feel this tension all the time. And by the way, if you're following Jesus, can I just make a suggestion? It's not like you don't live in tension already with what you believe. We believe in one God but the Trinity, like there's no tension there, right? We believe that the Bible is written by God and by people, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. We believe that God is completely uh, sovereign and in control, but we have responsibility or free will, right? We understand that some of you have hair, but the most good-looking people are bald. I mean, there's tension there, that we all believe in, right? So if there's tension that we carry and we live in all the time with our doctrine and our theology, why should there not be tension with how we treat other people who are annoying, messy, difficult, or anything like that, right? I mean, why should there not be tension there? So how do you do that? Well, let me tell you about the messy people in my life, if that's okay. It's my mom and my dad. As you heard not too long ago, when, my, when I was two years old, my parents both taught uh, uh, philosophy, law, rhetoric, uh, English literature at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and, and neighboring uh, colleges, like Stevens College and Columbia College and other colleges. When I was two, they both got a divorce, 
and they both went into same-sex relationships. My dad never had a monogamous partner. He had several different partners, and I didn't find out about my dad until around college age, but I always had my suspicions. But my mom was in a 22-year monogamous relationship with a psychologist named Vera. And I tell you that they're university professors because both of them were intellectual snobs. I'm not saying that all professors are like that. I love academia, but my parents were. And they thought that the fact that they were intellectuals and that they really understood culture and nobody else did gave them permission not to believe in Jesus. And so when I was in preschool, elementary age, all the way up through high school, my mom raised me in the LGBT community. When they moved to Kansas City, my mom and her partner both joined the board of directors for GLAAD in the Kansas City area, Gay and Lesbian Awareness Against Discrimination, uh, they took me to gay bars, gay clubs, house parties. Uh, they took me to activist events and, and pride parades. I remember one pride parade I was marching in. At the end of it, um, there were all these Christians, I use quotation marks there, who were holding up signs saying, God hates you, God has no room for you. And if that wasn't offensive enough, they were spraying water and urine over everybody at the same time. And I looked at my mom just as a little kid, and I said, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians, and you need to understand this. Christians hate gay people. They don't like you if you're different. I was like, well, I never want to be one of them. And I remember seeing this personified, exemplified again and again. I remember one time going to visit one of my mom's uh, friends who was a young man in her community who was in a same-sex relationship, and he was dying from AIDS. And we visited him in the hospital room in the 80s when nobody really understood AIDS, not that we do now, but really back then we didn't. And if you've ever seen somebody die from AIDS, it's a horrible death. I mean, it's just awful. I mean, just awful. But we knew that his you know, parents and family were Christian, and they were on the other side of the room with their big old Bibles out reading them, but they were plastered up against the wall. They didn't talk to him. They wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't do anything for him. They didn't want to touch him. And I said, Mom, why are they acting like this? And they said, well, Caleb, they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. And so I, I grew up, man, I just, I could not stand Christians. And by the time I got to high school, I had no worldview foundation. My life was out of control. Um, I would sneak out at night, go partying, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, my hair was down to here. Uh, <laughs> now, David told me this was a nice church. Apparently not. Apparently we laugh at people, this church, that's okay. But I got invited to this high school Bible study led by a high schooler, four high schoolers, and I thought, this is perfect. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go and pretend to be a Christian, and I'm gonna learn about Christianity, then I'm going to dismantle their faith. And so I grabbed one of my dad's old dusty Bibles off the shelf, I had never owned a Bible, and it said New Revised Standard. I don't, they revised something, I didn't know. And so I took it with me, and I went to this Bible study. You gotta understand, I had never been in the home of a conservative evangelical Christian. It was new for me. So I walk in the door, and the first thing I notice, and I think to myself, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep and lions <laughs> and Bible verses? And, and there, there's, a, there's a shepherd kid holding a sheep, and, and is that a cobra? I mean, I have no clue what's going on here. And I looked at my friend, I said, is this, is this part of the deal? If I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? And so I went down there pretending to be a Christian. They're all reading from 1 Corinthians. They get to me, I read from 1 Chronicles. Somebody getting slaughtered, and they said, well, that's not Paul, Caleb, where are you? And I said, I'm in 1 Chronicles. They said, oh, you're, you're in the Old Testament. I said, so is there a new one, I guess? There's updated 2.0. I had, I had no clue. I just thought the Bible was the Bible, and I just thought that was it. 
And yet, even though I was humiliated, I kept on going back because I wanted to prove Jesus wrong. But the more that I learned about Jesus, the more that I learned that he was proving my worldview wrong and that he was not like the people on the street corners holding up signs. He was not like the family who wouldn't touch their son who was dying a horrible death of AIDS. I learned this about Jesus, that he had very deep theological convictions and very deep expectations for how we should live our lives, but he also had very deep, meaningful relationships with people who were far from God. And he was willing to engage people and love people who are also far from God. And people that nobody else were, like tax collectors and Roman centurions and and women caught in adultery and so on and so forth. I mean, these are the people that Jesus spent time with other than his disciples. And I could get on board with that. And so I I knew that I had to study what the Bible had to say about gender, uh, intimacy, sexuality, relationships, and marriage if I was going to become a Christian. And so the more I studied, the more I came to this conclusion, which I still hold today, my church still holds, that God designed sexual intimacy for the expression in marriage between one man and one woman. And that's how God designed sexual intimacy. And anything outside of that is not part of God's design, or in other words, as we call it, sin. But I also came to this belief too, that your biblical beliefs and my biblical beliefs should never be a basis to treat somebody differently. That if anything what we believe should drive us to love people all the more. And so eventually, later on that summer, I decided I wanted to become a pastor as well. So you gotta imagine, I mean, how nervous I was. I, I called my friend one morning when I thought that, you know, I'd really accepted Christ and I believed in him, and I had been going to his dad's church and to their youth group, and I said, you know, I think I'm Christian now. I don't want the sheep picture, but what do I need to do? <laughs> and he said, meet me at the Chinese buffet, and then I'll baptize you, because... You know, that's what they did in Acts 2, right? They ate Chinese food. (laughs) Then they baptized everybody. So I went there. He explained the Roman road to me, what Roman says about salvation, and I got baptized. And I remember having to go to tell my parents. And if you can imagine how a same-sex attracted or gay teenager feels coming out to their uh, parents who are conservative Christians, I was a teenager who was 16 coming out as a Christian to my three gay parents. And they kicked me out. And I had to go from friend's house to friend's house until finally they let me back in. But it's amazing that the more that I studied about Jesus, the more margin that God gave me to be able to love people who are unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. That's what happens when you get close with Jesus. And so I decided to go to Bible college to become a pastor. So I went to Bible college in southern Missouri. I do not recommend it because most of the family trees in southern Missouri just go straight up. They're like one pole. They don't branch out whatsoever. So I spent four years in southern Missouri. I got out as quickly as possible. But while I was there, um, I remember I, I got to preach at all these little country churches like my second or third week being a freshman, I ended up preaching at this church in Kansas, Hepler, Kansas. There were six people in the church. Uh, the youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group. It was going to be a great youth group <laughs> for 40-year-olds. And then the second church I ever preached at, there were 25 people in the church, and it was in a town of 50. So we were the largest church per capita, I think, in the world at that time. And I kept on trying to get my mom to come with me. And finally, one day, she came with me to church. And I remember I was so excited, and they knew about my mom, because I had preached about my parents and so on. And the next Sunday, my mom didn't come with me, but there were two elders waiting for me at the doorstep, and they said, we'd like to talk to you. And they took me to the back room. We had two rooms. We had the front room and the back room. Really, I'd never been to the back room. I didn't even know there was a back room. And we went to the back room, and we sat down. They said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, so you don't think those people should hear about God's love or what God has to say about them? We don't like those people. They make us uncomfortable. And I said, well, I don't like you either. 
Okay, I said, I quit. I don't want to be a part of this church. And they said, well, we need you to preach today. I said, oh, you do not want that. Out of all the things you may ask me to do, preaching is not one of them. No, we need you to. So I ripped up my notes, and I went up there, and I gave the the most powerful evangelistic sermon that I could on the fly, and I walked out of there, and I said, Lord, if you ever give me the chance to lead a church, I want a church filled with messy, broken people, with people struggling in their lives, with people who are Pharisees, but they're really struggling with people who are using, people who are in gangs, people who are having marriage issues, and job issues, and financial issues, and questioning their sexuality, and been divorced, and had abortions, and people like that, because that's what the church is, people. The church is really a mosaic, a broken lives that God has united together to glorify himself. Here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus did not come to die on the cross for a church that is really a little country club masquerading as a Pharisee factory. I don't think Jesus came to die for that church. I think that Jesus came to die for a church that is willing to bring people in as they are and is willing to help them put back the pieces in their life as God is doing the same for us because that's what we forget about the word messy, right? One of the things that we believe that if you come to Christ, one of the first things you know, that we do is we, we repent. Literally, that means change a mind. In other words, we own our junk. We own our messiness. We have to admit that we are broken and that we are flawed. And if you can't admit that, I gotta know how your relationship with God is. And if you can remember where you were when you first had to admit that, maybe we can help other people. So, when I graduated from uh, Bible college, I got out of there as soon as possible and went to you know, Southern California, Los Angeles area, was at Shepherd of the Hills for 11 years. Something amazing happened. I married this beautiful, tall, Latina, muy caliente, thin lady named Amy. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue, no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Uncle Fester and Dr. Evil. She had no clue whatsoever, okay? I mean, this is what she wakes up to every morning. She's a lucky, lucky lady, okay? And so after being there for 11 years, I wanted to preach. So we went to Dallas, Texas, and something amazing happened. When we went to preach in Dallas, Texas for three and a half years, both of my parents, my mother's partner had died, moved down to Dallas to be closer to our family, and I didn't know what would happen. And then they asked if they could start attending the church I preached at. I was like, you want to attend my church? I mean, these are the people that made fun of TV and, and radio preachers, and I still do sometimes. But these were the people that consistently did it all the time. And they started coming, and it was annoying because my church was nicer to them than I was. Do you know how annoying that is when people are nicer to your parents than you are? But, but then two weeks before we left in the summer of 2013 to go pastor Discovery Church, both of my parents gave their lives to the Lord, both of them. And it was incredible. And I remember asking my mom, how did this happen? What happened? What, what caused the change? And she said, well, Caleb, people stopped treating us like projects, and they started treating us like people. Like a person, a human being that you're sitting next to you right now. And so I want us to learn how to live in this tension of grace and truth. If love is the tension of grace and truth, how can we live in this tension to be able to love people who seem unlovable, unforgivable, difficult, and the people that are in our lives just all the time that we have to you know, live with? So here's how, just five quick takeaways. If you want to write them down, you can. Um, whatever that looks like. But here it is. First of all, how to live in the tension. Number one, be known for what you're for, not against. Be known for what you're for, not against. Now, the Pharisees 
when they cut this woman in Acts 8, they were against her. They were against her sin. They were against everything that she was. They were against her so much that they wanted to kill her. And they were right that what she did was wrong, but yet look at Jesus' demeanor. Jesus was different. He was for her. He was for her redemption. He was for her restoration. He was for bringing her into a relationship with God and sending her on her way. And too often American Christians, myself included, we are better at letting people know what we're against than what we're for. And I think we need to switch it up a bit. Not that we don't ever need to take stands, but if everything is a stand, nobody knows what's important. Be known for what you're for, not against. Number two, a theological conviction shouldn't be a catalyst to treat someone less. The Pharisees with this woman believed that their theology allowed them to treat this woman as less than a human being. And while we may not be stoning or killing people, we do the same thing. And while we may not be holding up signs on street corners, we sure do on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and social media, right? Wouldn't it be cool if like, all Christians just calmed down on social media and maybe posted more about God than their own opinions and that kind of a thing? And yet, we, here's what I think. I think that our theology and what we believe about the Bible and Jesus should drive us to love people all the more and not treat them differently. Number three is this. Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. You, I think, are almost mandated by Scripture to accept anyone. That doesn't mean you approve of every life choice. Accepting people means loving people as they are, understanding you cannot change them. Jesus said something about this in Matthew 5, 46, when he said, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Can't anyone do this? And the Apostle Paul, man, he put it so well when he said, hey, In Romans 12, 18, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul says that peace depends on us. Jesus says that loving others depends on us, not on them or their behavior. And so I think we are called to accept everybody. That doesn't mean we approve of every life choice. I shake hands every Sunday with people where I know I wouldn't approve of their choice that they made during the week if I knew about it, and they wouldn't approve of mine. And I don't even approve of mine sometimes, and I know you don't approve of some of yours. But anybody should be able to come to church here. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what kind of relationship you're in. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. The only exception is if you root for the Raiders. I'm not sure about that. Other than that... You should be able to come to church here because Scripture teaches us that there's a difference between acceptance and approval, okay? I I, I love this next one, okay? Number four, realize the issue is identity, not sexuality. Realize the issue is identity, not sexuality. I remember a conversation that I had with my mom one time, and my mom uh, brought this up. I didn't bring it up. It was weird. It was awkward. She said, well, Caleb, it, it was before she became a Christian, when her partner was dying, you know that Beer and I, we haven't been intimate for the last several years. You know, well, first of all, gross. Nobody wants to hear that from your mother, okay? I don't care if your mom is still married to your dad. We don't talk about, a stork brought me, that's what happened to me, okay? (laughs) I never have those conversations with my parents. But yet, when she said that, I said, so you're not sexually intimate anymore, so you're not a lesbian. She said, well, sure I am. Those are my people. I have grace there and forgiveness, and people understand me. I'm part of a cause and a movement, and I can relate with people. And I said, you just described the church. She said, no, I didn't. Why would I go somewhere that would make me feel less about myself? And it really dawned on me that a lot of us, we think that uh, especially same-sex relationships are just about the sexuality part and the sexual intimate relationship when most people I know who identify as LGBT say that that is the smallest part. So we focus all of our energy on that smallest part. 
You see, here's what we do. We meet somebody who identifies as LGBT, and then we throw, you know, after a few days, maybe seven, because that's God's number. Nobody wants to do it on day six. We throw, like, 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, and we throw Leviticus 18, and we throw in a little Genesis 19 there, which I believe all these verses are true and inspired, but here's what the other person thinks. The other person thinks, hey, you don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know anything I've been through. You don't know anything about me. You told me not to define myself on my sexual orientation, but because you have not taken time to get to know me, you are actually reducing me down to my sexual orientation. That's what you tell me not to do. You're actually doing to me. You see, that's what the Pharisees did to this woman. They saw her identity in the sin she was committing, and yet Jesus saw her identity as the potential she had to be in following God. See, here's the last one. You may not agree with this. Number five, I guarantee you, some of you will not agree with this, but listen to me, hear me out on this, okay? Listen, listen, this is so important. God never called you to change a person's sexual orientation. He called you to point people to Jesus. Okay, listen to me on this. He never deputized you to change lives. If, you change, if you're able to change your life on your own, you would not need Jesus to come and heal you and save you. You cannot fix yourself. We are very good at running ourselves into the ground, right? I mean, Jesus is not just my wheelbarrow. He's my car. I'm taped up with duct tape in the trunk, and he's in the seat driving the car. I mean, that's how messed up my life is. And Jesus is the one that holds it together and lives my life for me. And so how in the world do we have the audacity to think that it's our job to change somebody? No. It's our job to love people, treat them as human beings, And here's what else I believe. I believe that we do need to have conversations on holy living. And I believe that in the context of trust and a good relationship, God will give us the opportunity to have difficult conversations on holy living. See, I think it all comes down to this. And if you haven't read Barry Corey's book on kindness, you need to. And and he's the one that really introduced me to this verse right here. Romans 2.4 says, hey, don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? And if God's kindness leads us to repentance, how much more should our kindness lead people towards a path to God and finding out who Jesus is? See, God loves messy people. Love is the tension of grace and truth. And that's where we need to live. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to be here, for the opportunity to uh, teach uh, just what I've learned to these people. Father, I love this church. I pray for people that may be here for the first time or Uh, Maybe they haven't been to church in a while because of a bad church experience, and we've all been there before. But help them to know that this is a church they can come to that will love them as they are, where they are, without expecting them to be perfect. Father, help some of us who may feel estranged from you because of how Christians have treated us to really see that you're not like the people on the street corners. You're not like the people on social media. You're not like the person in Orlando. And for those of us who are following you, Father, help us to realize that maturity is found in not just what we know, but in how we love others, even when they are unlovable. It's in your son's name I pray.